History of the European Theatre podcast, and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Following on from the first episode in this mini-series, when I took you on a tour of the first folio copies on display in London, I'm now going to look at the hows and whys of the creation of the folio. It's quite a story in its own right, involving some of the best craftsmen living in London at the time, as well as people who had a keen and intimate interest in getting the work published, possibly for different reasons. Perhaps the obvious question to start with is why was the printed complete works created? In their introduction to the printing, Heminge and Condell said of the plays, We have but collected them and done an office to the dead without ambition of self-profit or fame, only to keep the memory of so worthy a friend and fellow alive, as was our Shakespeare. Given the massive undertaking that the printing of the plays would be, we can probably take this at face value that Heminge and Condell believed in the greatness of the canon of Shakespeare's work and believed that it deserved to be preserved, whatever it cost them. Let's say that we can put the actor's ego aside in this case, but also I think it's safe to say that for others involved and invested in the project, there was an underlying commercial interest. In his will, Shakespeare had left Hemage and Condell and fellow actor Richard Burbage 26 shillings and 8 pence to buy mourning rings to remember him by, which was a common sort of bequest at the time. But his will makes no mention of preserving his work as part of any deal with them. Indeed, at the time, plays were still thought of almost exclusively in terms of performance for transitory entertainment, and there was little or no culture of reading plays for personal and solitary edification or enjoyment. Plays were printed, but only very few of them made it onto paper, and they were usually printed in small formats, as quarto or octavo editions, with pirated versions often published with no permission or verification from the author or the owner of the plays, who was typically the proprietor of the playhouse who had first bought the script or commissioned it. The distinction between the size of works printed comes from the technique of printing multiple pages on one sheet of paper. The folio was the largest form, with two pages printed on each side of the paper, which was then folded in half and trimmed to produce four pages for a finished book. Quarto printing used the same size paper, what we now call A2, to print four pages per side, which was then folded twice and the folded edges trimmed and thereby eight pages for the book were produced. The octavo size took the process a step further with eight pages printed on each side of the paper with the folding and the trimming process then producing 16 pages to be bound to create the finished book. So although the printing of plays was undertaken there was certainly no sense that a playwright could be admired in literary terms. This was with one exception which was a very significant one. In 1616 Ben Jonson, Shakespeare's contemporary, his friend and his rival, published a first folio of his complete works. This was just six months before Shakespeare died. Jonson's folio, simply called The Works of Benjamin Jonson, included his plays, poems, masks and other entertainment. That's nine plays, two poems, thirteen masks and six entertainments in total. Only five of the masks, a poem and one entertainment, had been published previously. This is now seen as the first attempt by any English Renaissance playwright to have his plays taken as serious literature alongside his other work. 
Johnson was in his mid-forties when he put his first folio together and was still producing new work. But this has the real sense of Johnson wanting to establish a sense of his legacy as an artist. It was a big exercise in self-promotion. But it also may have given Heminge and Condell the idea that a collection of plays in print was a good way of maintaining their great friend's own legacy. Johnson went on to plan a second folio volume featuring later works in 1631. After three plays had been printed, the project ran into trouble. Johnson wasn't happy with the quality of the printing, and his business relationship with printer Robert Allett soon crumbled. Allett died in 1635, and the ownership of the works then fell into a complicated legal dispute. Johnson himself died in 1637, and a third folio, more or less his complete works, was not published until 1692. So, maybe spurred on by Johnson's self-promotion, maybe motivated simply by respect for and belief in the importance of Shakespeare's work, and just maybe, although they would never admit it, hoping for a profit, Heminge and Condell kicked off the project to collect Shakespeare's plays into one volume. And I should note here that it was only the plays that were included in the collection. Shakespeare's poetry was well known, but this was his fellow actors, collaborating in his memory, and for them it was his plays that mattered. With the first folio, they went on to produce the first printed collection produced in England to contain only plays. All three men had worked closely with Shakespeare as part of the King's Men, and it's safe to assume that between them they knew most, if not all, of the plays very well. John Hemmage was born in Droitwich, but moved to London aged 12 as a grocer's apprentice. Aged 22, and by now a freeman of the company of grocers, he married the widow of an actor in the Queen's Men, who had been killed by a fellow actor. The first mention of theatrical interest is in 1593 when he's recorded as one of Lord Strang's men. Two years later, he was with the King's Men, where he remained until his death in 1630. Throughout his involvement with the theatre, he also remained active in the grocer's company, and through that, active in the life of the City of London. In fact, there's quite a crossover with apprentices of the grocer's company appearing on stage at various times. It seems that he was always on the lookout for new acting talent from amongst his fellow grocers and their apprentices. References to Hemmage as an actor are very scant in the record, but suggest that he took on tragic roles and he acted intermittently into his fifties. What is more certain are the records that place him as the main administrator in the King's Men Company. Records list him as the man who collected the payments for performances at court and as the contact man between the players and the master of the revels. He owned a building adjoining the Globe Theatre, which was probably an alehouse. He also acted as a guarantor for Shakespeare when he bought a house in Blackfriars. So we have a real sense of a successful businessman who was fully engaged in the life of the theatre and the business and administrative life of the City of London. Henry Condell's origins are obscure, but he was probably the son of an East Anglian fishmonger. He might also have been in Lord Strang's men, but he was certainly acting in London in 1596. He worked in the Lord Chamberlain's men and in the King's men, and where there is a record, he's listed as one of the main actors, but always below Burbage. He prospered at acting and certainly did well enough to buy a house in Fulham, then an area that was well outside the city and considered a country residence. 
and the fact that he is mentioned in Shakespeare's will suggests that he was a close associate and a senior member of the company. He seems to have stopped acting in 1619 and died eight years later, aged 51. I won't linger on the details of Burbage here, as I feel sure he deserves an episode devoted to him when we get to Shakespeare in the main podcast narrative. But he was a leading actor of tragic Shakespearean roles, his position only rivalled by Will Kemp for comedy and Edward Allen in his time. However, he died in 1619, so it's not clear exactly how much practical involvement he had with the project of the first folio. It's hard to believe that he wasn't instrumental in launching and invigorating the plan, but we have no hard evidence of this. But these three were undoubtedly in a good position to gather together scripts and collect a complete collection of the plays. Perhaps they started just by making a list of the titles they knew, which they already had in their possession, which were lodged with the King's men, and with an idea of where they might find others. We don't know when the idea for making the collection was formulated, but publication didn't occur until seven years after Shakespeare's death, so we might imply that collecting and editing the scripts took a long time, even when we take the relatively slow printing process into account. And we should remember, as you have already heard on this podcast, that it is unlikely that they could easily get a script that was complete and a single correct version. Perhaps best of all would have been copies of individual plays already printed in quarto or octavo versions. The editors were certainly concerned about the quality of these and would have checked them over carefully against their memories. Presumably they could still quote many of the lines of many of the plays verbatim but also against their next best source, the prompt copy. Single prompt copies of some plays may have been available and would have given a complete version of the play, but even these would have had additions and notes scrawled all over them that would have needed interpretation, perhaps even a degree of deciphering, and decision-making about what was to be included or omitted in a definitive version for print. Cue sheets may also have been available to them, given the entry and exit points and lines for one character or several characters played by the same actor. These seem very confusing to us now, but these particular editors were used to using them and understood how they worked, so they may have been useful to them. Other sources may have come from Shakespeare's family, such as manuscripts or early versions or rough copies of the work that he kept at his London home or that he took with him to Stratford-upon-Avon when he retired from the London life. If that leaves you with an image of a room piled with papers of varying quality and quantity, gathered at different times and from different sources, well, that seems to me to be not too far from the truth. The work involved, even in just collating a version for printing of all the plays, must have seemed daunting, if not, at times, insurmountable. As much as this was a passion project for Hemmage and Condell, they must have realised early on that success depended on a good financial basis for the project. As we have already seen, John Hemmage in particular was a man of business as much of the stage, so he surely had an eye for how to finance the project properly. Perhaps aware of the ambition of the project, they went to one of the best publishers and one of the best printers in the business to help bring their plan to life. Edward Blunt, son of a London tailor, was born in 1562 and as a young man was apprenticed to the stationer's company for 10 years. He became a freeman, a full member of the company, in June 1588. While publishing in his own right an Italian-English dictionary, comedies by John Lilly, 
the works of Cervantes and Johnson among many others. He seems to have toyed with publishing Shakespeare plays before. Both Antony and Cleopatra and Pericles were registered by him with the stationer's office in 1608. We don't know why neither publication didn't come to fruition, but this suggests that he realised that Shakespeare plays in print could be a good business proposition. Blunt was a successful and international publisher and businessman, so he may well have made a very significant contribution to financing the printing of the first folio, but we don't have any details of the financial arrangement between the parties concerned. William Jagger's printing shop in London was at the sign of the Half Eagle and the Key, in an area of the city near St Paul's Cathedral that was the centre of the publishing business. Jaggard, born about 1568, followed the usual route as an apprentice to a printer and then set up his own shop. At the time, there was a distinction between the printer who produced the work and the publisher or bookseller who owned the rights and commissioned it. Jaggard was one of the growing breed of businessmen who began to blur the lines and invested in some of the publication projects that he was printing. Jagger's shop produced a wide variety of work, from popular ballads to highly illustrated academic and esoteric works. And of course, at the time, the line between those two subjects was very blurred. The point is that he could produce very high-quality work, displaying some of the finest printing possible in England at the time. Contrary to the impression sometimes given by the first folio, because of the many errors and corrections that are noted, Jagger was a top-quality printer. In fact, he was appointed the official printer to the City of London in 1611. A few years prior to that, in 1608, Jagger purchased part of the business formerly run by James Roberts, a printer who had worked on several Shakespeare plays in quarto version and who printed the players' handbills that advertised their performances. Jagger was particularly interested in that business, which was run as a monopoly, and it was granted to him in the end, in 1615. Jagger had a long involvement with printing Shakespeare, but it was a troubled one. In 1599, he published a volume of 20 poems that he announced as being by Shakespeare. Modern scholarship attributes only five of the poems to Shakespeare. The original edition has only survived as fragments, but a second expanded edition has survived as a complete copy, as has a third edition printed in 1612. He was also involved in printing a collection of ten plays by Shakespeare in 1619, which has become known as the False Folio. Jagger printed the ten plays in such a way as they could be bought individually or bound as a collection at the customer's request. Only two complete copies of those survive and suggest that the bound copies were put together with the plays in no particular order, except that it is the first time that versions of Henry VI, Part Two and Three were joined together in print as related plays. The collection also included Henry V, King Lear, Pericles, A Midsummer Night's Dream, The Merchant of Venice and The Merry Wives of Windsor. Two other plays included in the collection, Sir John Oldcastle and A Yorkshire Tragedy, are now not considered to be by Shakespeare. A Yorkshire Tragedy was originally attributed to him, but is now thought to have been written by Thomas Middleton. Sir John Oldcastle was never attributed to Shakespeare. Henslow's diary includes mentions of the play and lists four authors, none of which are Shakespeare. But there is a connection to the eponymous character, who was a historical figure and thought to be the inspiration for Shakespeare's Falstaff. 
Jagged's motivations beyond commercial gain for publishing both the poetry collection and the false folio have troubled scholars, and there seems to be no clear answer other than to say that Wright's ownership and the printing of what we would now consider pirate copies are some of the murkiest waters of Elizabethan cultural life, especially when it comes to the still relatively new form of licensed plays for public performance. Clearly, there was money to be made in the printing of plays, and authorship of plays was not always clear-cut even at the time. But it also seems pretty clear that Jagged and other printers and publishers worked on the edge of what was legal as far as Wright's ownership went, and were comfortable with stretching the truth when it came to putting a good publication together. What was undisputed was that Jagged's print shop had the capacity to produce a large work like the envisioned first folio, and, we have to assume, he showed an enthusiasm for doing the work. If the other collaborators had concerns about Jagged, or animosity towards him because of the semi-legitimate poems and earlier play collections, then they put them to one side from necessity or perhaps expediency. In fact, by the time he was approached about the work, Jagged was an old man and nearly blind. It was his son Isaac and his team of apprentices who took on the practical work of producing the first folio. Jagged Sr. died in November 1623, just before the first folio was published. And these men, as far as we know, were the producers of the first folio and the investors in it as a financial project. Where rights to a play were clearly established, the owners were probably paid a fee, or maybe a profit share if they pushed for it. The King's Men may also have received a fee, and Hemmings and Condell might have been paid a fee as editors, in addition to any profit share from their financial investment. Printing was, by modern standards, a laborious business, but nevertheless, as is well documented elsewhere, a revolution in its time. Once the overall design had been settled on, and the version of the plays to be printed selected, be that as manuscripts, annotated printed versions, or most likely some combination of both, the typesetting could begin. Printing probably started with the first play or plays that were ready and editing and research and even locating of copies for the others continued. Working from a master version of a play, a compositor would transpose the words, letter by letter and space by space, onto a compositor's stick. Each letter was represented on a small metal block. The compositor had to select the upper or lower case characters and place it onto the stick next to the previous letter. Punctuation blocks were also selected in the same way, and blank blocks for spaces were also added. Once a few lines were prepared on the handheld stick, the ordered letter blocks were transferred onto the shallow tray known as the galley. The letter blocks were packed tightly into the galley to achieve consistent alignment and to ensure that there was no movement in the blocks during the printing process. As I mentioned before, printing in folio meant that two pages were printed on one side of the paper. So once all of the setting was complete for those two pages to be printed onto that one piece of paper, the galley was locked into a metal frame called the chase. The amount of print type owned by each shop was usually only enough for a few pages of printing at a time. So once a page had been printed the required number of times, the type was removed from the galley, washed, dried, returned to the racks in order and by typeface to be used again. I've seen one estimate that says over 4 million type settings were needed to produce the first folio's 908 pages. With enough apprentices, a sort of production line was possible, with perhaps the most junior apprentice washing, drying and replacing the letter blocks that were finished with, 
with more experienced apprentices already setting the type for the next few pages. As with many apprenticeships, the aspiring printer was expected to serve seven years, and records show that maybe there was also an element of throwing them in at the deep end. John Leeson is recorded as starting at Jaggard's as an apprentice in November 1622, and within five months he was typesetting the first folio. So perhaps it's not surprising that the folio has many printing errors, some of which were corrected during the print run, but others were left or went unnoticed. It's said that the hand of at least five individual compositors can be detected in the first folio. But notwithstanding these errors, there is no doubt that this was very skilled work, and the way printing remained with little change to its basic process for most of the subsequent 400 years, in fact right up to the 1980s when digital printing was introduced. As well as the printed words, the decoration above the title of each play and filling the page at the end of each play had to be created. The intricate swirling patterns were carved onto wooden blocks. The print of these was made at the same time as the words on the page, so they had to be locked into the same printing block once the words had been typeset. The engraved portrait of Shakespeare required more detail than could be achieved on a wood block, so artist Martin Drawshut was employed to engrave the image in metal, where a finer line could be achieved. He was an expatriate of the Netherlands living in London, and just 21 when he was employed for the task. We don't know what his source material was, but presumably a picture combined with the memories of those around him who had known Shakespeare personally. We can argue about whether it's a good portrait or not, or how good a technical engraving it is or not. But either way, it has undoubtedly become one of the most famous and influential portraits ever created. So, we will leave Isaac Jaggard and his apprentices busy at work and Hemingen Condell looking over the printed pages and worrying about all the editing they still had to do. And next time, in the third part of this mini-series, we will finish off the printing process and look at how the first folio was sold and what journeys various copies have gone on since then. And so that you can see what the folio actually looks like, I've posted some photos on the website blog page that I took on my recent visit to London to see the copies currently on display. In the meantime, please join the Facebook page or group or find us on Instagram or Twitter to keep up to date with the podcast and other theatre-related stuff. If you'd like to help support the podcast, the easiest thing would be to pass on the word to anyone that you think might be interested in a bit of theatre history, or if you have a moment, write a review and rate the podcast in your podcast app of choice. You can find details of other ways to support the podcast at the website, which is at www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com. And there's also additional content on Patreon that you can access for a small monthly fee. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp@gmail.com at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Mm-hmm.